God, we praise you. We worship you for your word. You are so good to us because you've made life clear. You've made life clear to us. Not only have you made life clear in terms of telling us how we can live, and, but uh, also you have demonstrated for us how to live. You didn't just get up and say things. You demonstrated you were the great example for us, the perfect example. And now we ask, Jesus, that you would do what you came to do, which is to live your life through us. So open up your word to us. We love your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So moving through Luke's gospel, answering this question that Jesus poses, who do you say that I am? How we answer this question, his question, is what? It's everything. It's everything. And I think sometimes when we've been around the church thing, we've um, lived in certain contexts. For me, I grew up a pastor's son. I grew up, you know, born, uh, you know, kind of on the pew, as they say. When you're around uh, these types of things uh, all your life or for a long time, you start thinking, you know what, I got this. This is, this is in the bag, and I've got that question answered, and my life reflects that answer. Does it? Because, again, we can, we can answer that question, who do you say that I am, but then what does our life actually say? What's the truth behind the words that we're speaking? Jesus is claiming to be king Of all other kings. He claims to be sent from the kingdom of heaven to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. These are his claims. And as a result of him giving his life, he lays claim on your life, he lays claim on my life. Has there been a real exchange and an ongoing exchange that makes that real on an ongoing basis? We're into chapter 6 here, verse 17 through 19. A couple preliminary scriptures, verses as we jump into the primary text. But when they came down from the slopes of the, of the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There's a bunch of folks standing around really intent on Jesus right here. So he's got his boys with him and he's got the crowd. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed. And Jesus cast out many evil spirits. Everyone was trying to touch him. Everyone's reaching to get something because healing power went out from him and they were all cured. Everybody wants a piece of the action. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, So you've got this massive crowd all around Jesus, and then you've got these guys who we just talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about Team Jesus. These are the guys that Jesus picks, 
the leftovers, the, 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 the outcasts, the guys that didn't make the cut. And so this huge crowd is all around him. They're gathering. They're reaching for Jesus. They're trying to get a piece of the action. And he turns to his guys, his disciples. For many during this time, I mean, Jesus is, is all about, he's, he's on the rock star status. He's, uh, he's, you know, starting to really, uh, his name is getting out there. His reputation is getting out there. Um, he overnight, he becomes this magician type of thing. People are like, what? Ah, we got to get, you know, there was all kinds of symbols of good fortune. Jesus gets lumped into another one. You know, he becomes that for many people. Instead of desiring God's love and his forgiveness, many Basically, they just wanted to be around him, the notoriety that he was receiving. They wanted to be healed. Some people today um, approach God as this cosmic vending machine, offering up prayers in order to get what they want. Many see him as a really good prophet. There's plenty of religions who view Jesus as a great prophet, good teacher, a nice little added accessory. Some view him as Lord. Some view him as a good luck charm. But Jesus, his claim is that he's master. Prayer is not a means to control God, but a way to put ourselves under his loving guidance and control. Now, as soon as we bring that word control into the picture, that's where people start twitching. That's where people really start to get uncomfortable. That's the last thing we want anybody to do to us, especially in our culture, is to control us. Because literally what we're talking about is by the Holy Spirit that we would be possessed. That we would become the possession of God. That sounds really, you know, not too bad when you've kind of grown up around that. You're like, yeah, I belong to Jesus. I belong to him. You know, we sing the songs and we do the chants and all that kind of thing. But when it really comes down to it, your life, when nobody else is around, the choices and decisions that we make, are we possessed by this spirit named the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ? Movies have given it a bad rap, but here's the deal. You hear voices in your head, and you do what that voice tells you to do. That makes you, as a follower of Jesus, somewhat of a freak. Your head, your heart, your spirit, whatever it is, you've got this book that was compiled by many, many numerous authors over thousands of years, and you actually follow these dictates that are put forth and these commands in this. 
And supposedly these words are supposed to resonate with the voices that you hear inside you. (laughs) And you're supposed to do that. Whatever he says to you, you're weird. (laughs) You, You know, you get out in the public arena, the public conversation, you can't defend that really without coming across as some sort of a freak. I was watching something uh, this last week, and Lisa and I were taking a look at it, and uh, I think her name is Dana Loesch, and uh, she had on uh, her show this gal who is the wife of an NHL hockey player. She is a Christian, and she used the word submission. Yep, yep. She submits to her husband, and that's how she believes that um, they're part of a, an ingredient, an aspect of it, that she wrote in her book. It's just a small phrase. Well, people who started hearing about her coming on, you know, this show, and, and uh, so Marie Claire, the magazine, women's magazine, that's a women's magazine, right? Yeah. I haven't actually read it myself. But um, they tweeted out, you know, whoever it was, the editors and stuff from there, you know, they're just saying, you know, um, this gal, I can't remember her name, but she has set the, you know, the women's movement back a billion years. And this is one little small thing that she puts in her book and they, you know, pull that out and make that the thing. But it's like, you can't use those types of things. You're, those in the public conversation, no, I'm being facetious, right? You can't use those. She brought it out boldly and she's like, this is, this is life. This is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. I was proud of her. It was very, very good. But this is a whole new level of power that people are seeing. They've never seen anybody be able to do the things that Jesus is doing. He's putting all kinds of broken people back together again. So you've got, let's set the stage just a little bit quickly. You've got uh, maybe upwards of like 20,000 people gathering for for this type of thing. This would be uh, um, highly unusual because the villages and towns were very, very small. I guess the, you know, some of the areas where, where Jesus is from would be like 50, maybe a hundred people. Some of them would have traveled two and three days by foot to hear Jesus, hoping to be healed, hearing about the things that he's doing. Luke's account is, um, you know, we're, we're going to be getting into verse 20, uh, through 26 today. And uh, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew gives us what we mostly know as Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes uh, out of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew takes, you know, a a few chapters, whereas Luke's only going to take a few verses to do this. We're going to get part one of the Beatitudes today. But it's about a third the length of Matthew's account. This... Um, different scholars think that this could be a paraphrase possibly of Matthew's account. Because again, Luke was not necessarily an eyewitness of, of all of these things that he shared. He was more investigative reporter. And 
Or it could be a composite of a number of different similar sermons that Jesus would have taught as he traveled. So the Sermon on the Mount would be something, you know, kind of like his his circuit message that he's, he's going around. He would preach these different things. And so people are picking up on a number of different areas. And that's where we see the, fami- the familiarity or the similarities between these different aspects. So Jesus is going to describe the traits that he is looking for in his followers. Those that are going to be part of his kingdom, he in a sense, Jesus is laying out the constitution of the kingdom of God. Again, he's surrounded by huge crowds but he turns to his disciples. He's talking directly to them while everybody else is kind of in the room, so to speak. He's going to hone in on people who are going to take his word and do something with it, who are actually going to act on it, not just lip service, not just wanting to be around him, not just wanting to grab some of the vibe that he was putting off, not just getting on the, you know, the bandwagon, but the people are actually going to hear something and do something with what he is declaring. Each beatitude is very, very countercultural. This is the kingdom of God invading planet earth. Jesus promises his followers that living this way will produce opposition and suffering. A great deal. Opposition and suffering. Jesus is unleashing what is known as, as I said, the constitution of the kingdom of God, it's the law of grace. Do you hear that? The law of grace. It's the law of grace that they're going to live by. How is grace a law? Well, it's because the law, you're no longer going to live according to the law or under the law, but this new law that he has, which is in John 13, which is that you love one another, this command, and that to live under grace rather than the performance that they have been stuck under and oppressed by for so many years. The best example of each trait that Jesus is going to put forth is in Jesus himself. The goal of Holy Spirit in our lives, relationships, our work, our recreation, our entertainment, is Christ-likeness in every area of our lives. To be like Jesus. He's going to tell us, how to do that. So he starts off here in verse 20, second part. God blesses you who are poor. For the kingdom of God is given to you. God blesses you who are poor. For the kingdom of God is given to you. When? The kingdom of God is given to you. When? When? 
Is this a future thing? It could be. I mean, some of these things are future things. But actually, this one right here, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is given to you, given to you right now. This is the starting point of the kingdom of God for an individual. This word in the Greek, blessed, this word blessed, it means to be characterized by the quality of God. To be characterized by the quality of God. One who is actually indwelt by God. Not due to circumstances and not even by fulfilling the conditions of these things that Jesus puts out here. So our indwelling, the indwelling life of God is not dependent upon whether or not you fulfill these things. But it's conditional upon this starting point. It means to be fully satisfied. Not due to circumstances or fulfilling these conditions prescribed in the Beatitudes, but due to Christ's life in us. Therefore, it's wrong to translate blessed as happy. Some translations do that. You can't actually, you can't put in there or substitute the word happy in there for blessed. Happy is uh, because happy, happiness is associated with circumstances. It's associated with luck. It's where we get the root in there is hap, H-A-P, where we, where we get um, happen or happenstance. It's like, well, it just happened to be that I was at the right place at the right time. That's not what this is about. People can be happy because of circumstances, but they can only be blessed because of Jesus. They can only be blessed because of Jesus. Blessedness is the basic condition of being a, be, that is created by the indwelling life of Jesus in a person's heart, bringing satisfaction, a joy that transcends um, circumstances that we're going through. That's why James is able to say, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you are going through various trials, tribulations, suffering, different things. How is that possible? Because it's not dependent. It transcends circumstances that we're going through. So what does it mean to indwell? What's indwelling? Somebody help me out. What what does indwelling mean? Let's break those words up a little bit. In and dwell. Take the in now and bring it around to the end of dwell, to dwell in. Now we're tracking. This is good. (laughs) To dwell in. Yeah, slow down. That was a little... To be permanently present. To be permanently present. Living in. Jeremiah, you dwell, Kenmore-ish, in a house. I've been to your house. I've seen your dwelling, your abode, and you permanently dwell there, at least for the time being, right? (laughs) That's right. That's where you call home. What happens when, you know, Lisa's she's in childcare this morning, but what happens when Lisa leaves? There's a longing 
when she's not at home, when she goes and visits her parents or different things like that. There's a long, there, there's a lack of life that's there because she's not there. I miss her tremendously. So there's a lack of the indwelling. And so she's not permanently there all the time. She goes out and do her things. And I tell her when she comes back, I missed you. I was longing while you were gone. Jesus is indwelling us. Blessedness is a progressive, is a progression. It depends upon the fulfillment of the conditions set down in the Beatitudes. So Jesus is laying out a progression of the journey of life in following him. And I want you to notice something here that these things are built. They start with number one and then they build on top of one another. In other words, you can't have number five or six without getting one. This is really important. I didn't get that myself. I didn't come up with that as I'm studying, you know, early church fathers and different ones, you know, they're, they're talking about it and you're going to understand here in just a minute why that is. Let's look at the first one. God blesses you who are, who are poor for the kingdom of God is given to you. Poor. Are we talking about economics here? What are we talking about then? So we know it's not economics, but what, it, what exactly is he getting out here? Poor, or as Matthew states in his gospel, the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, right? As we're, we're probably a little bit more familiar with that rendering. But this word poor in the Greek here, it means a helpless person. This is the starting point condition of every person prior to entering into the kingdom of God. A helpless person contrasted with another Greek word that means poor, but able to help oneself. Okay. So what do we have in our culture today that is so prominent? Self-help. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Doing it on your own, figuring it out, whatever. And Jesus is saying, in order to enter into my kingdom, he's telling the crowd so that they can overhear. But he's speaking to his disciples, making sure that they get it. Because they're going to have to be the ones who are going to carry it. You can't get there from here. Without this, the progression doesn't go any further. You must be poor in spirit, desperate for Jesus, unable, incapable, thinking that you can save yourself. Please consider this. Church folk, please consider this. People who have grown up around the church all your life, consider your level of desperation for Jesus. Consider your actual life decision choices being made that you actually make that tell us really where you're truly, where we're really at. Consider, are you poor in spirit? This isn't like American beggar, you know. We're talking about third world. The guys, remember the pictures that we showed of the the, uh, just graphic, gruesome pictures of people with leprosy. This is, you know, Kumar, you know, India. If you've been to other developing nations, I mean, we're talking about poor, poor, poor. Guys on the street that we saw, the man with the leprosy, 
incapable probably of walking based upon the, the, uh, the deterioration of tissue and whatnot. It, it probably too painful in different parts of his body to walk, to do anything to provide for himself, completely dependent upon others to feed him, to take care of him. And that is where the starting point of the kingdom of God is. This is the first step to blessedness is the realization or the revelation that we're spiritually helpless. We're spiritually helpless without Jesus. You need to understand here from an economic standpoint, Jesus is not a Marxist. He's not a liberation theology guy. Liberation theology was the idea very prominent in, uh, I don't actually know what years, but I just remember studying them when I was in, in college. But um, the idea, it was very popular in places like Central America, but, you know, communism, which is the, the poor rising up against the rich or, you know, and in, in taking over. And that the idea that Jesus was coming as a liberation theology to set people free from the oppression of poverty. Jesus passed a lot of poor people and didn't fix their plight. He was far more concerned about the internal. It's not that Jesus didn't meet physical needs. He did. And we do. And we must. But that was not the primary focus of why he came. That did not necessarily represent setting someone free. John 15 says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And those who are in my kingdom understand that. They have a revelation of that. You know, it's kind of like, think, think about this, and this, is, this isn't a thing of, this has more to do with revelation. It's not a thing of, of you know, going through the motions of some religious ritual or anything like that. But what, when we go day, maybe days, day after day, sometimes maybe weeks, we never even get into the Word of God. I think one of the greatest actions of pride is for us to think that we can live life without God's Word. To go along just like, I got this. What is that? That's a self-help program. Living life without Jesus. Living life without the continual spirit-led direction in our lives. Taking and embracing, consuming His commands. Where is the Word of God in our lives? How prevalent do we study God's Word? I'm not talking about, you know, this thing that came about in the early 1900s with, you know, the influence of romanticism and those kind of things, this personal devotion thing of just, you know, getting up and, and uh, having this personal time and we just, you know, open up the Bible and kind of close our eyes and, and point just like, oh, just great. That could happen maybe, but I'm talking about somebody who has a consumption problem with God's Word. 
In other words, they've got a problem. They're consuming so much. Because you see, the more we consume of the Word of God and the things of God and the life of God, the more hungry we become. We eat in the natural, the less hungry we become. The more we eat in the Word of God, in the things of God, the more hungry, the more desperate we become. This is our basic foundation starting point in the kingdom. Without this revelation, nothing else works. If you're wondering maybe why things in your life are not working, check this, check this category right here. This is where it all starts. Let's hit another one here. Verse 21. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. In the Greek, this word is more accurately translated, the hungering ones. The hungering ones. God blesses the hungering ones now, for they will be satisfied. This speaks of a continual repetition of satisfaction with God's righteousness and with God Himself. God Himself. So Jesus is is talking to people that have probably, you know, many of them traveled many, many miles to be there. It's not like they had grocery stores. It wasn't like they had McDonald's they could go to or anything. These people are probably really hungry. But he's addressing a whole different type of hunger. He's calling forth the hungering ones. When you hear the word of God, when you get in and study the word of God, I don't know about you, but that produces a hunger in me. And I wonder when I don't hunger, it's because I'm not seeking, I'm not pressing in, responding to the Lord, consuming large amounts of God's word. Literally, the word of God is what sets us on fire for him. It does. As we receive God's righteousness and of him himself, there's this constant hunger for more of God, his righteousness. Then we've got the weepers, second half of verse 21. God blesses you who weep now, for the time will come when you will laugh with joy. God blesses you who weep now. In the Greek, getting a little Greek lesson this morning, but it's so important to get into some of these, and I won't assault you with my poor uh, pronunciations of the Greek. Just trust me, I am kicking out the Greek here, but it refers to this, God blesses you who weep now, refers to sorrow for one's own sins and the sins of others. Those of you who weep now, to be sorrowful for your own sins and to be brokenhearted over the sins of other people. I love what St. Ambrose, early church father, says here. He says, the repentant weeps for himself and rebukes himself. The repentant weeps for himself and rebukes himself. The just person will accuse themselves of sin. 
How often do we evaluate that? Yes, we life of grace and, and all the rest, but how often are we confessing our sins to the Lord? Do we go days, weeks? When's the last time that happened? Are we saying, hey, we need to go to confessional and you know, we, everybody needs to you know, convert to Catholicism? No, but you know what? They've got something. Many of them who, who really, they're truly repentant hearts, confessing on a regular basis our sin, keeping a clean slate with God. God, I was wrong. Are we cut to the heart because of our sin, of how we treat others? Decisions that we make when nobody else is watching. Another thing too, do we allow cycles of, non, of unrepentance in our life, of lack of confession? You know, sometimes we just, you know, we throw in the towel and just like, who cares? You know, just give ourselves over to something because we, it's like, oh man, I, I, I gave into that sin again. And so then what do we do? I don't know, I can just speak for myself, but there can be patterns of this where, where, we, um, where, where I will just, I'll feel really bad. And so I'll go several days, maybe even a week, and just, you know, kind of wallowing in my self-pity, th- feeling sorry for myself. And then what do I do? I'll bring my filthy rags of righteousness to God when I've worked it through and I feel better now. It's, there's a, some gap between my sin and my choices. And then, and then coming to God and he says, your, your filthy rags of righteousness, they're, they're just disgusting to me. Why? Because Jesus is our righteousness. The very moment that we sin, let's say even if it was intentional, you chose it, premeditated, you did it, you did it. To, to confess immediately, say, Lord, what? I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm confessing to you my pride, the way that I just spoke to Lisa, the way that I just treated my kids, the thoughts that I have in my mind. I was wrong. Immediately come before the Lord. Trust in Him and His righteousness. Trust in the power of His blood. Don't wait. Don't put it off. There's nothing you can do to make it better. Get it out there. Get it out in the open. Confess it and experience the life-cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, would you? And even if you don't want to, do it anyway. Not because this is the way we usually do things, but we do want to to pray together. We want to seal this time in You, Lord. Lord, we've seen here depicted a crowd of people flocking to many of them just to have their ears tickled. But they weren't really looking, some, many of them, for Jesus to really be King and Lord of their life. 
They came looking for the benefits, but not the sacrifice that was required of following this heavenly king. God, I say to you, I do not want to play games. Jesus, we don't want to speak words and live something different. Thank you for the grace that you've given us by your Son. Jesus, live your life through us. Let us be the hungering ones who hunger for you, for your righteousness, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I don't know what we're going to